Welcome to After Hour, a podcast where a journalist retains a lawyer to solve societal problems. Because sometimes knowing why isn't good enough. We need to know what we can do. Sometimes we need more than truth. We need hope. I'm Jane Steele, your host and investigative journalist here with Joseph, the managing partner of Sang & Associates. All right, Joseph. So I have a case about international sex trafficking. It actually took place a while ago, back in 2005. So this is not breaking news. But this case actually uncovered a network of over 25 Korean-owned brothels. And they were all linked together in New York, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. Okay. The investigation, like I said, began around May 2005 when a Korean couple who owned and operated a chain of brothels in Queens, New York, tried to actually bribe an undercover NYPD detective to protect their business. Wow. The thing is, he accepted. Okay. So he continued to work in an undercover capacity, but took the bribes. And between May 2005 and a year later, March 2006, they paid him a total of $126,500 in cash bribes. Then on March 8th, 2006, the couple and now the officers who who are being bribed because it was one and, and another, they were discovered during the investigation to be accepting bribes and they were arrested and charged with police corruption. Rightly so. They then went on to find between two and eight prostitutes in Queens, the majority of whom were Korean women. And the thing was, these were not American women who were ethnically Korean. These were women brought from Korea and recruited, and this included a minor. Mm. So it was majority women over 18, minor. The recruiters were actually working for a trafficking ring that would go to Korea in search of women, and they would either provide them with false travel documents, or they would smuggle them across the Canadian or Mexican borders to get into the United States. They would identify women in Korea who would want to come to the U.S. for a job, for legitimate purposes, and they would coerce them into coming with them to the United States under false pretenses. And by the time these women arrived in the United States, they had incurred large financial debts, usually $10,000 and more, to the recruiters in Korea and other members of the sex trafficking organization. And they weren't allowed to leave until they had paid back this debt. which is actually a really common way of keeping women trapped in trafficking because they're told you owe us this much money for bringing you from Korea to the U.S. and you're not allowed to leave until you you pay us back. You owe us. And the women are so fearful, they don't know what to do. They, They stay. They actually did threaten the women with physical violence against them and their families in Korea if they ever attempted to escape before repaying their debt. And so... The way this all played out in the United States was middlemen here would arrange for the women to be placed in one of the network's brothels, and then they would take the women to said brothels. And in many cases, these places were under the guise of legitimate businesses, such as, you know, massage parlors, health spas, acupuncture clinics. But they actually got the majority of their revenue through illegal prostitution. So they were fronts. These businesses were fronts. Once the women were delivered to the brothels, they were placed under the supervision and custody of the brothel owner or manager, which included 
having their earnings taken from them. And then the women not only being threatened with debt and physical harm to themselves and their families, they were also told that if they tried to leave, they would be turned over to United States law enforcement, to immigration authorities. Essentially, there's no way out for them. You'll either be killed or you're just incurring massive debt or you're just going to rot in an American jail or be kicked out and never get to come back. The humiliation of it also. Exactly, exactly. Because they didn't necessarily sign up for what they ended up doing. You know, they might have actually thought, I'm coming to the U.S. for legitimate purposes. Yeah, I I do have to get in illegally. But once I get there, I can better myself and better my family and help us. The main man running this whole operation was a man named Mr. Kim. And the NYPD actually legally wiretapped his phone, Mm. which is how this all came to light because they would intercept cell phone conversations that revealed that women were being traded between locations and exchanged. And that was how they were able to discover this network. And then there are two, the two moles in the organization. So finally, 67 Korean women from the brothels were taken into custody after a police raid and 31 individuals were arrested. They were charged with conspiracy to engage in interstate transportation of women for the purpose of prostitution, conspiracy to transport illegal aliens and transportation of illegal aliens, and conspiracy to operate an unlicensed money-transmitting business. And Mr. Kim was sentenced to serve 38 months in prison for attempting to recruit a Korean woman who he believed to be a minor, that I mentioned earlier, to work as a prostitute. He was also ordered to forfeit $50,000 to the government for his role in the scheme, and he pled guilty in 2007. That sentence sounds so light for some reason. Doesn't it sound light? I was shocked. Yeah, wow. Uh, 38 months. I would add like two zeros. <laughs> I would too. I would too. So after all this came out, because this was back in 2005 and wrapped up in 2007, the focus on sex trafficking has grown exponentially since then, which is a great thing. This has not always had the public eye and public concern. And back in 2005, even as this was coming to light, now fast forward to 2021, it's much more common knowledge that sex trafficking is a thing, you know, that this is not okay. Like warning signs, police are doing a lot more. And actually in New York in 2013, it launched specialized courts called the Unified Court Systems Human Trafficking Intervention Initiative. And these were called Human Trafficking Intervention Courts. And they were meant to help the criminal justice system and sufficient services work to not just put victims through the criminal justice system. It's meant to interrupt that revolving door of criminalization and victimization and in and out. But those haven't worked, actually. It's really good in theory, but the courts actually haven't been able to fulfill what they're set up to do for two reasons. The first one is the conflation of trafficking with prostitution. The line is so blurry and sometimes the women themselves or whoever's been trafficked doesn't even know. There's also the confusion of criminal justice, coercions, and interests with the structures and practices needed to actually do counseling and social services well. Mm -hmm. So there's weird intermingling there, and it, it doesn't really work, or it hasn't at least worked in this instance. But then taking it further, this is obviously not just a New York problem. Right. This happens everywhere. Everywhere. An estimated 45,000 to 50,000 women and children are trafficked annually to the United States. That's primarily by small crime rings and, and loosely connected networks. It's not these massive organizations. 
And the trafficked victims have traditionally come from Southeast Asia and Latin America, but now they're actually increasingly coming from Central and Eastern Europe, not to the exclusion of other places. But in fiscal year 2019, the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement initiated 1,024 investigations to human trafficking and recorded actually a little over 2,000 arrests, 1,000 indictments, 691 convictions, and 428 victims were identified and assisted. So this is happening. This is moving. I'm not here to say this isn't going on at all. Our law enforcement is working hard to do this, and our government is working hard. The United States has actually set out this three Ps paradigm, prosecution, protection, and prevention, to combat human trafficking home and worldwide. The Department of State has also employed a fourth P, which is partnership, which is extremely necessary if we're going to get off the ground, if we're going to achieve progress with the other previous three Ps of prosecution, protection, and prevention, there needs to be partnership. Every segment of society has to work together. But in spite of these efforts, the numbers are still absolutely egregious. In a report that came out in 2017, it listed that approximately 24.9 million people were involved in trafficking, whether that could be forced labor, sex trafficking, there's a variety. Actually, that same report estimated that 40 million people were in modern slavery at any given time. And this included forced labor, sex trafficking, and actually forced marriage as well. So with all of this in mind, I'm very happy with the efforts that are being made. It's clear that our government and governments around the world are working hard to combat this and that there's more public attention now than there was 15, 16 years ago. That's that's pretty apparent. But when you zoom into this particular story about these women who came from Korea and were trapped in brothels and then taken into the court system with a question mark at the end, are they victims? Are they not? That is not okay because these women were lied to I believe they were trafficked. When they're involved in this, regardless of whether they had chosen to or not, they're stripped of their identities, passports are taken, money's taken, and they are coerced or forced into work that they might not want to do or that they might not be 100% consenting to. And not only that, but in this particular case, law enforcement is involved in a bad way. This went on for over a year with two cops taking bribes to not talk about it. And so, you know, the three Ps that the United States has set in place are great, but if there's dirty cops on the street, where is this going? When you can categorize victims as prostitutes and justify that because there's no crime in your mind, maybe as a law enforcement officer, I just don't see that as being something that we don't need to reevaluate. I think that we need to seriously consider decriminalization. And I'm not saying that from a moral standpoint. I'm saying that from a standpoint of these women who are trafficked could be labeled as prostitutes, which puts them in the criminal justice system. The conflation and the closeness of victims and consenting adults who do this as their line of work is so blurry because often that's exactly what victims think they are. And so In order to really address this problem on a larger scale than just this investigation here, this investigation here, we're busting this crime and we save five people. That's great. But on a larger scale, why don't we actually say this isn't illegal? So you are never going to be charged with this. You're never going to be fearful that I'm going to come forward and say I need help and I'm going to be put in jail 
or I'm going to be put in this system and I'm going to face the consequences. Why don't we remove that option for these women? Obviously, there's more barriers, but I feel like that would actually do a lot and that would set us in the right direction into really putting a dent in industry that thrives on exploitation. And when these women are given back their ability to say, this is, this is my work and it's justified and it's legal and I can take steps to protect myself and protect people around me, I think we would see real change. Criminal organizations thrive when the customers and the victims and themselves all hide in the shadow. So the customers of the prostitution, they are in fear that they will be found out. The victims, the people who are being trafficked, they are provided proper incentives to not want to leave, whether it's fear or it's monetary gain. And also the fact that if they leave and they report themselves to the police, they are part of the criminal justice system as well. So criminal organizations thrive in that scenario, in that environment. But when things are decriminalized, suddenly the customers, if they're not satisfied with a product, if they're not happy, they found out that, oh, your organization is using illegal workers? Well, I'm going to write a bad Yelp review. I'm going to report you to the Better Business Bureau, right? And, and in that case, when customers are not in fear, when they are doing the self-reporting, then criminal organizations do not thrive in that kind of business environment, and then they shudder away. And that's the main argument surrounding decriminalization. If something is decriminalized, then the customers will step forward, then the victims themselves, certain people will still be victims, they will still be quote-unquote cheap labor in the U.S., but because of all the other competition that will start springing up left and right, people who are not doing this because they're in fear, but because they love doing what they do and they will do a better job marketing, then suddenly it becomes not as profitable for these business organizations to traffic in people and provide a quote-unquote inferior product on the marketplace. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. And I agree, if there's more visibility and people aren't afraid to come forward, to me, it seems common sense that, of course, it will bring things out of the shadows and eliminate crime. So why isn't that just a great solution, at least to start with, right? But that begs the moral question. Is it right or wrong for society to have sex work? And that becomes the centerpiece, and that should be the centerpiece before society makes any changes, right? And that's the reason why I say it might take generations and generations and generations before this is put in place. Until the public opinion, the public policy confirms, approves with overwhelming support that sex work is to consenting adults. It's perfectly legitimate. It should not be a crime. So until then, society will still view prostitution, sex work as a crime, and that provides this environment where criminal organizations will want to take advantage of that, of the customers being fearful and the victims themselves because it's very lucrative. And the only way to stop that, I think, is if the public, if the police, they work together. It's not just police working independently. It's not just the legislators trying to debate this moral code. And it's not just the public when they see something, say something, but when they feel that they are very much connected with the police force, when they feel that they are part of the justice system and not this broken criminal justice system, but they are there and they have the resources available to help these women and children, then I think we will have a better society. Many thanks to Joseph for our conversation today. After Hours is a podcast by Sang & Associates, 
an international firm dedicated to solving legal problems with creative solutions. If you enjoyed today's episode of After Hour, you will find these conversations and more on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. For information on Sang & Associates, go to sangslaw.com. Feel free to connect with us on Instagram and Facebook, as well as to learn more about what we do and hear success stories from Sang & Associates. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thank you for joining me for After Hour. I'm Jane Steele.